Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, our text this morning will be beginning with verse 22. And this comes, for those of you who were here last week and we preached the previous text, this comes on the heels of Jesus' words of warning about the issue of covetousness or greediness. And so he speaks here, and you remember last week as we considered that Jesus, it says in verse 15, that he's gathered, he said to them, because this man came desiring that Jesus would serve as an arbitrator, that he would tell his brother to divide the inheritance that should be shared with him. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to, to warn against greed, to warn against covetousness by giving them a parable, the parable of this, this rich man who prepares for everything except for the inevitable, and that is death itself and accountability before God. So Jesus addresses his disciples here in verse 22. It says he says to his disciples, he has been speaking to a larger group, his disciples and the multitudes that were there around him. Remember, it says in chapter 12, verse 1, that there's, there were so many thousands of the multitude that have gathered around Jesus. And so there, there's been this vast crowd. But here, Jesus addresses this particular lesson to his disciples. And again, not limited to the twelve, but the larger group of disciples that would have been in the context there that would have been following Christ as well. So it's certainly a matter that as Jesus addresses this issue, and it is the issue of anxiousness or worry. So it's certainly something that Jesus recognizes that his disciples are susceptible to anxiety, to worry. Is it reasonable to expect to live without worry? Is it reasonable to expect to live without some measure of anxiety? You know, we might think about that, and as many of us might have the mindset that thinks, well, if you don't have what Jesus is going to speak of here, where you don't have many of these things, or you don't have much in the way of this, it's easy to become worried. But uh, what I find is that there are people in all walks of life, in all economic circles, who have the same problem, and that is one of worry and anxiety. But you just find that their worries and their anxieties are about much bigger things. You know, their worries are about... Maybe perhaps a job layoff or their worries are about the uh, the uh, crash of the stock market or their worries are about their their uh, retirement fund being lost. And you hear of such things, do you not? So there may be larger resources that they have available to them, but you still find that there is a common a common ailment, if you would, that Jesus addresses here. And, and, and who other than Jesus to do that? That Jesus can speak upon an issue that is, that is so broad that it encompasses all of us. And it does, doesn't it? That we all have, to some degree, this tendency, this proneness to be anxious and to be worried. So, again, the question is, is it reasonable to expect to live without worry? 
And according to the words of Jesus, the answer to that is yes. It's quite reasonable that if you are a child of God, to be able to live without worry, without anxiety. Begin reading with me in our text, Luke chapter 12, verse 22 through 34. And again, this is a parallel to text we're very familiar with in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For life is more than food and body than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life span? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why are you anxious about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? And do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek for His kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves purses Purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, certainly Jesus knows what ails us, does he not? Jesus is a man of few words. And so you can believe that the words that he speaks are of significance. And why is it that here in this context that Jesus takes the time to address the issue of worry and anxiety and worldly goods? Well, we've already been directed there because of what's transpired before. And that was the account of the man who came asking Jesus to intervene on his behalf. And there Jesus addressed the issue of covetousness, of greediness. And there the problem being that desire and that wanting to have these things. And believing that if you have these things, that you can experience life to its fullest. And that if you don't have these things, you're missing it. And Jesus counters that. Make sure it makes it very clear that life does not consists of the things which you possess, even if you possess a great number of these things. So you have the issue there, one, of having a right relationship without becoming greedy, without becoming covetous, thinking that, that life is bound up in what you possess. But the other side of, the, of it is this. 
we recognize, and Jesus recognizes as well, that there are certain things in life that we need. And Jesus also recognizes the, the tendency that we have within our hearts to be overly concerned, to be anxious, to be worried about these things. And the word that's translated, incidentally here, is translated anxious, to not be anxious, Many times worried in some translations. It's the same word that you have back when you had the account we studied a few weeks ago of Martha and Mary. And it, Jesus says to Martha, says that you are worried about many things. The, I, the word also has the idea of you are distracted. You are distracted. And so to say that you are distracted from something at least has the implication that there's something else that you should be focused upon. That is of greater importance. That you should give your mind, give your affections, give your attention to not to be focused upon other things. And in this case, lesser things. Jesus just very simply knows the human heart. And he knows that if we are anxious, if we are worried, if we are distracted from these things, that it will prevent us from experiencing what he desires for us, for us to experience. And that is spiritual satisfaction. His desire is that we be spiritually satisfied, that we live our life in relationship with Christ, in relationship with God, in joy and in delight. That's His intention intention for us. That we be filled with joy, delighting ourselves in the Lord, delighting ourselves in Christ. And if we are distracted by other things, then our joy will be taken. And we begin to question, have I done well? Have I done right in trusting Him? And certainly all of us know that the the frustration of being distracted, maybe when you've had a task or something to do. There have been weeks that I've that I've been given in preparing for a message here and just the task of sermon preparation week by week. And there's been those occasions have come up that I've just been distracted, not always by things that are going on, but sometimes the distractions just they're just mental thinking about things, things that need to be done and want to be done and all this type of thing. And I can get to. The middle part or the latter part of the week and just, and just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need, I need your grace to, to focus in upon this text and the task that I have before me in preparing a message for your people. And you know that frustration, men, your workplaces, when you have to give attention, you to focus upon something, perhaps you even know the times that you've been unable to do that. You failed to focus and it's been costly in some measure. Well, in the Christian life, there is certainly a big distractor, and that is anxiety and worry. And so as we consider this text here this morning, we want to view it from the standpoint, believing that God desires that we be free from such worry and anxiety. And so if we are to do so, we must follow his counsel. It's not something we can simply talk ourselves through and talk ourselves out of. God's given his counsel here. He has given us help. God has condescended to us, hasn't He? And talked about something as, as mundane, as worry, anxiety, distraction. Something as mundane as food and clothing. Those things that we have to give some consideration to because we have to have them. So let's see here. What 
is his remedy. What is Jesus' remedy here for us anxiety? First of all, we want to consider two concessions. Two concessions that Jesus would have us to make if we would be free from worry and anxiety. And actually, these are concessions that should be obvious to anyone. They're not things that we have to think through for lengths of time and think, well, I think I can agree to this. I think I can concede to this, to this truth or this proposition. We ought to be able to look at this and say, you know, that's glaringly obvious. I know these things. And the first one that he would have us to make, the first concession is anxiety's impotence. Anxiety's impotence or anxiety's powerlessness. That it has the capacity of actually accomplishing nothing. Verse 25. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life span? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why are you anxious about other matters? Again, this is a concession that should be easily made, that nothing is and nothing has ever been accomplished by anxiety. Isn't that not true of your experience? Is there anyone in here who has ever been guilty of worry, anxiety? You're free to raise your hands if you want to confess such. Is there anyone who would raise your hand and say, I've accomplished great things by worry and anxiety? <laughs> it doesn't happen, does it? There's no power. Because where is anxiety? It's all right here. And it may cause us to do some things, but anxiety, worry itself, accomplishes nothing. It's not putting hands to action. It's not putting feet into movement. It's going round and round, and the idea there of that word that of being distracted is that there are these thoughts that are just coming and they're going in and out, and nothing's accomplished. If anything, it leads to nothing more than a state of confusion. What should I do? Even to a state of paralysis. I'm so uncertain of what to do, I do nothing. So nothing is accomplished by worry, a distracted mind. No progress is made. Now, Jesus' question here in verse 25, which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to lifespan? Here he uses linear terminology, linear measurements to speak of time, and that's not unusual. In Scripture itself, in Psalm 39, verse 5, there the psalmist speaks of, of our, our life being a hand's breadth, distance from here to here. Well, how do you measure time in inches. Well, so that's just the, the terminology that he uses here in this verse. Which of you, by, by being anxious, can add a single cubit? The cubit's about 18 inches to his lifespan. So he's speaking here of the increasing of one's life, not one's stature, not one's height. But he's using here linear terminology. And his point is this. Why practice this? thing called worry, this thing called anxiety in regard to other matters if you can't accomplish even what he would deem the smallest of things, that you cannot add one second unto the length of your days by worry, by anxiety. You have no such power. You recognize what? You recognize that such things are within the hands of God. Right? 
God is the one who has numbered not only our days, He has numbered our seconds. And if we recognize that such things that would be, again, so small, in Jesus' words, if these things are in the hands of God, why in the world are you practicing worry and anxiety and things that are obviously far beyond your capabilities? In regard to making sure that you have clothing and food and whatever the case may be. So the first concession that he would have you to make, have us to make, is that there is no power in anxiety. Are you willing to make that concession? I think so. We're willing to admit that. There's no power in in anxiety. But the second concession he would have us to make is this. is God's omniscience. God's complete and perfect knowledge of such things. We see that in two places in this passage. First of all, verses 22 and 23. For life is more than food and the body than clothing. Consider... Consider the raven, I'm sorry, back up 22. And he said to his disciples, for this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Life is more than food and body than clothing. Then we see it in 29 and verse 30. Do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink and do not keep worrying for all these things. The nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus here appeals to God's perfect and complete knowledge about things. Now, in verses 22 and verse 23, although he makes no reference here to the knowledge of God, we can expect that if we understand that the essence of life is more than food and clothing, then we can certainly understand or expect that God would know that. So, God knows the essence of life. He starts out in verse 22. For this reason, I say it to you. For what reason? What's he speaking of? For what reason? Well, he is speaking of what has taken place in previous in the account here of the rich man, the parable that Jesus told of the rich man, the creator who knows what life truly is. And what what does he say? He says in verse 21, if we back up one verse, the man who lays up treasure for himself contrasted to riches toward or riches in God. Riches in God. In God. So what is the essence of life? Well, last week we saw the essence of life is not what we have. Neither is the essence of life to be confused here with food and clothing. God understands what the essence of life is. That it is riches toward Him. And if He understands, He knows what the essence of life is. Being rich toward Him Are we to believe that He will forget? Are we to believe that He will neglect our needs of much smaller, relatively secondary matters like food and clothing? God knows the essence of life. He knows the important things. The real issues are riches toward God. And if God is able and willing and is concerned about things of such magnitude, 
Can we not believe that He knows and He is concerned about things that are so small and mundane as daily provision? That's the point that He's making there. He doesn't neglect. He doesn't forget. He knows that these are not the most important things in life, but He does know that these things are necessary for life. Not only does He know the essence of life, He also, as we see in verses 29 and 30, He knows the essentials of life. Do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink. Do not keep worrying. For all these things the nation of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. He knows that. He knows that we need these things. He is your creator. He knows how you were created. He knows that you were created body and soul. That you have necessities to be to sustain this body. He knows that. He is also your father. That's what he says here. Your father in heaven, he knows that you need these things. And the picture there is not just that he's, that he's one who has knowledge, but there is this sense of, of a loving, compassionate father who cares for his children and he provides freely and abundantly for his children. Don't worry about these things. God knows he is your father and he will care for you. So, are you willing to make that concession? J.C. Ryle, in his um, expository notes on, on Luke's gospel, incidentally, if you don't have those, that's a, that's a worthy purchase. It's a pretty easy read. J.C. Ryle has a it's a commentary on all the gospels, expository thoughts thoughts through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And again, very easy devotional type reading. And I just really found his words on this text here to be very refreshing. And I'm going to take the time this morning on, on a few points to read. I want to read one part that he says here in regard to this particular thought in this verse that we've been considering. That The words that he says there in verse 30, For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. He says, J.C. Ryle says, Christ bids us remember that a Christian man should be ashamed of being anxious. As a heathen, the nations of the world may well be careful about food or be concerned. The word careful in that context, being concerned about food and raiment and the like. They are sunk in deep ignorance and know nothing of the real nature of God. But the man who can say of God, he is my father and of Christ, he is my savior ought surely to be above such anxieties and cares. A clear faith should produce a light heart. Finally, Christ bids us think of the perfect knowledge of God. God knows these things. He knows that we have need of food and raiment. That that thought alone ought to make us content. All of our wants are perfectly known to the Lord of heaven and earth. And hear this. He can relieve those wants whenever he sees fit. He will relieve them whenever it is good for our souls. He will. 
when it's good for our souls. I, I, I just shared that with Beth this week. As I said, I read this and shared it with her. And just, just doing something that just gripped my heart. That truth right there. That He can relieve those wants whenever He sees fit. And He will whenever it's good for our souls. What a wonderful truth. God knows. Yes, but He is a loving Father who knows. And a loving Father who takes action on behalf of His children. So, those two concessions. Anxiety's impotence. God's omniscience. I trust that those are not difficult for us to make as believers in Christ. And again, we're talking... He's speaking to disciples. And I'm speaking here in the context to God's people. I'm hoping that these are concessions that as God's people we can easily make that anxiety is powerless. No good is accomplished. God is omniscient. He knows these things. And His knowledge of such things is sufficient. So, which of these two Which of these two concessions did you deny in your last little fit of worry and anxiety? Which one? Haven't you been worried or bothered or troubled about anything in recent days? Well, which of these? Which of these did you forget? Well, there is such a a simplicity here in what Jesus is saying. I mean... How simple it is to say, anxiety accomplishes nothing. I mean, that's almost so simple, you say, why even say it? But we need to hear that, don't we? Jesus condescending to us, what good has ever been accomplished by it? You need to recognize that. Let's quit doing it. And doesn't God know? Does this one who is your father, doesn't he know that you need these things? Can you not trust him to provide for these things? You're going to entrust your soul to him, but you can't trust him for your day-to-day provisions, your day-to-day needs? What kind of a God is this? What kind of a father is this who feeds your soul and starves the body? So it's just completely... Irrational, isn't it? So Jesus here just speaks to the very heart of the issues. You say, well, I'm just one of those kind of people. I just worry. You know, I I can't help it. I mean, it's like this is, it's natural and it's my default mode. My default mode is worry. I live there. I can't help it. Let me, let me tell you something. If that's what you think of yourself, Jesus intends to deliver you. Because such worry and such anxiety is sin. And He delivers His people from their sin. So we don't lay down and make excuse for ourselves, well, this is just the way I am. Or, you don't know the circumstances that I'm in. The circumstances I'm in, if you were here, you'd worry too. You're probably right, but that doesn't make it right. Jesus desires to deliver us from anxiety, from worry. 
Just very simply, He wants us to live according to what we know to be true. You know this is true. Well, live like it's true. You know worry accomplishes nothing. Well, live like that's true and stop doing it. You know that God knows your needs. He's your Heavenly Father. God is your Father. Christ is your Savior. You know these things. He's going to take care of you. Stop being anxious. Stop worrying. Stop being distracted from the things I want you to be focused upon. And that is your walk with me. To understand that worry and anxiety, dear dear believers, is a reproach. It is a reproach against God's faithfulness. And as Ryle said, as Jesus makes reference, yes, the the nations of the world, they seek these things. They know nothing else. They, They must. They know nothing of the assurance and the comforts, the prison of our Heavenly Father. They're consumed with these things. But you're not. Give them their place, but do not give them chief place. Second, Jesus' remedy for anxiety are two considerations. Here again, there is such simplicity in this. It's almost, it's almost embarrassing. But on the other hand, I'm glad that Jesus speaks in such simplicity, that He speaks in such a way that anybody can follow. This is not hard, philosophical. This is not difficult science to follow. This is something you can walk outside and you can do. Two considerations that He gives to us. First of all, He appeals to the ravens. Verse 24. Consider the ravens. Anybody can do that. You don't need a master's degree. You don't need a doctorate, Ph.D. You don't need any of that. You don't need a high school education. My children can go out and think about the ravens and think about birds. Isn't this simple? Now, you thought to be worry-free, to be free from anxiety, it took something great, didn't it? It doesn't. You just need to think about the birds. Think about the ravens. What about the ravens in particular? Are you concerned about your next week's grocery bill? Are you concerned about where your next meal is coming from? you got something you need to do. You need to think about and consider the ravens. So anytime that I, I find myself or you find yourself worried about food and provision... We can rest assured, I am not thinking about the ravens. I'm not considering the ravens. Now, what does he want to think about? Go look out your door at the ravens. What are these? Some have said they might be even the crows, but it's certainly something, the old black bird, that it's, it's good for nothing. Can't even offer these things to God. They're unclean. You can't eat them. Well, I guess you could, but you probably don't want to. What is this bird good for? Not much of anything. That's the point. It's there. It's part of God's creation. And there's, if you want to know what it's there for, that's what it's there for. It's there for the glory of God. But what does he say about these things? He says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. And he's not saying you don't need to sow nor reap. <laughs> they don't sow. They don't reap. They have no store nor they barns. But what? God feeds them. Here's what you need to consider when you consider the ravens. You need to think about God. 
You've not rightly considered God's creation. You've not rightly considered the birds of the air and the ravens that are out there. You've not rightly thought these things if you've not had your thoughts thrust to God Himself because these are creatures of God that He feeds them. That's what He says. He doesn't say, and remember this is Jesus speaking, this is Jesus who is God speaking on behalf of God, and Jesus says, God feeds them. It doesn't just happen. Oh, that there's a wonderful cycle of provisions to all the things you're taking care of. All these laws have been set in, into the run of their course, and so they're, they're taken care of. No, that's not what he says. God feeds them. So learn the lesson from the raven. How much more valuable you are than the birds. I know that's not very popular in some circles today. To think that people are more important than animals. But they are. And let me tell you, dear child of God... You are infinitely more important to God than the birds of the air which He feeds every day. And if He's going to feed them, rest assured, and we talked about this last week, that's God's value system. He's got a good value system. He values things and treasures things, some things more than others. And you're at the top of the list, dear child of God. And if He's going to feed the ravens, He's going to feed you. The second consideration is, Jesus says in verse 27 and 28, is the lilies. <clears throat> you concerned about clothing? Concerned about what you're going to put on your kids? You've got growing kids. You know, they wear it one month and they don't wear it the next. <laughs> Concerned about those things? Go open your door and go for a walk. And look around you. Find a, a grassy field and look and look at the lilies of that field. And he says in verse 27. The lilies grow, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. Solomon, who had at his disposal the monetary means for whatever he wanted to array himself in the grandest, the greatest of splendor, and, and he did it as best he could. And God says, Jesus says here, that does not compare to the beauty of what you see when you walk through the fields and you, you see the fields and the flowers growing up in these fields. Note verse 28. If God, if God so arrays. Folks, it's not just happening. It's not just Plants doing what plants do. It's God. 
It's the hand of God. God dresses mere grass fields in such beauty. Can't you believe that He's going to do that much and more even for you? Can't you believe that? Isn't that that reasonable? He raised the grass in the field, verse 28. It's alive today and tomorrow. It's thrown to the furnace. It's temporary. And it's beautiful. God gives us these things and they're, they're beautiful. They're going to be gone. They're, of, they're just so transient. How much more will He clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. See, there are lessons that God would have us to learn from. Creation. Psalm 8, there the psalmist marvels when he considers the, the glory of the heavens and the sun and the stars and the moon. And, his, and the resulting response is, when I see these things, I'm compelled to say, what is man that you're even mindful that you give even a thought to him? And you see the vastness and the greatness of this creation that testifies of the glory of God. What is man? And that's a right response. That we ought to marvel that God gives thought to us and concern to us. I've been listening with our children in recent weeks more times than I care to tell you. More times than I care to listen again to go to the ant, thou sluggard, Judy Rogers. <laughs> but there's a lesson there to be learned. To go and to learn about working and diligence. Well, there's a lesson here that Jesus gives us here. There's two lessons in, in this text. We're to learn about the things of God in the creation. We're to learn about God's care, God's faithfulness, and how He provides for the ravens, and God's concern and God's care, and just the way He, he clothes the fields in beauty with the flowers that are there. That God does these things. And what's, what's so sad is so much of the time that we have all that testifies to us of the greatness and the glory and the care of God for us in creation. And we look outside and we see ravens and it's all we see. And we see flowers and it's all we see. And we don't think about God. We're missing it. It's a pretty simple lesson. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to go to the botanical garden somewhere, pay 20 bucks to get in and see all the beautiful flowers. You can walk into your own yard and see it. See something of God's care. Have you considered the ravens? Have you considered the lilies? Oh, not just as birds and as flowers, but have you considered them as part of God's creation, that they have a a role of testifying to us of the care and the concern and the goodness and the willingness of God to provide for us as His children? If He'll do it for birds and He'll do it for flowers, will He not do it for us? Consider that. See the work of the hand of God in our world around us. His message. His message is being proclaimed throughout His creation. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood through what has been made. It ought to be so clear to us as we look out into the world and see God's creation. As Paul says, we ought to be able to understand something, the invisible attributes of God by what we see in creation. Understand something of His eternal power, something of His divine nature. It's clearly revealed. A blind man should see it. And in light of such a revelation, we are without excuse for our anxious worrying, for being distracted to lesser things rather than being focused upon the greater things. There's the old hymn, song, This is my Father's world. And it is. It's a world that testifies. It has God's fingerprints all over. It's a world that gives day-to-day visual testimony to us if simply our eyes are open to see. God help us to see. How many times have I doubted God just very simply because I've not given appropriate consideration to His creation? I mean, what all is God involved in out there? You know, what is it that keeps this planet at its appropriate tilt, at its perfect orbit, so that it's not either thrust into outer space or drawn into the sun by its gravitational pull? What is it that keeps it there? There's enough to see the attributes of God. God opened our eyes to learn these lessons. So Jesus, He speaks very plainly, doesn't He? Very simple. Think about these birds, these ravens. You think about these lilies. You think about them. Really think about them. And let that drive your thoughts to God Himself. And then how can you possibly, how can you possibly have a worry about food or clothing? That's what He's saying. So finally we come to the last. That's two commitments. Where's all this leading us to? And that's, that's the issue here. If we are worried and we are anxious and the idea, again, of being distracted. What are we being distracted from? Well, there are two commitments. Actually, it's one commitment and one is the outworking of that commitment. And I put it in there in your outline in your in your bulletin. I just put it together rather than separate it. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. You can't really separate the two, so I put them together. We obey his instructions to do what seems to be to the world, utter folly. And he says in verse 31, here's the counterpart. Here's what you're being distracted from. Here's where I want you to be focused. Here's what I want you to give your attention to, to set your mind upon, is I want you to, verse 31, to seek for His kingdom. Seek for His kingdom. And these things that you're so prone to worry about, that you're so prone to be anxious about, these things will be added to you. So it's to obey His instructions to seek 
first His kingdom. To obey His instruction of seeking His kingdom, first of all, by making sure I have entered into that kingdom. That there has been entry by repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That I have first sought that kingdom by entry, but I continue to seek that kingdom by considering the things of God considering God's will for me, walking in a life that is pleasing to God, and that I also be sharing that world, that kingdom with other people, desiring that others would enter into that kingdom. That is seeking first the kingdom of God. Certain of my own entry. Living my life with my mind and my heart consumed with the things of God and of heaven and of eternity and doing all that is within my power to see men and women come to Christ to enter that kingdom as well. Obeying His instruction to seek His kingdom first, trusting, first of all, verse 32, that it's His delight to give the kingdom to us. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. God's not out there asking you to pursue something and keeps holding it away from you. You know, it's not that carrot dangling on a rope and the closer you get, the further away it goes. It is His delight. It is His good pleasure to give to you the kingdom of God. So seek after it. Pursue it with all your heart and with all your mind. And, and the assurance here is He gives it to you. It will be yours. An incomparable treasure. So to, to obey His instruction, to seek that kingdom, trusting that He delights in giving the kingdom, but also trusting that things like food and clothing, that comes in the package. Verse 31. All these things shall be added to you. It's a given. You don't have to think about, is God going to provide for these things? Is God going to care for my soul? Would I do my best to care for these other things? No. God cares for you and every aspect of your being, all of your needs. Trust Him. Pursue the kingdom of God and trust Him when He says these other things. I'm going to give them to you. They come in the package. To obey His instruction as He gives him in verse 33. To sell your property... You know, the opposite of what was conveyed to us in the parable of the rich man who, who had all the, the abundance of his crops come in. And what does he do? He, he hoards it all. He holds it all unto himself and, and tear down his plans to tear down his barns, to build bigger ones so he'll have room to keep it all for himself. And Jesus assures them, listen, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live your life hoarding things for yourself, worried about tomorrow and the next day the next day. You can live with an open hand of generosity to those who have need. And it's not here, incidentally, a universal command for all of God's people to go and to sell all that they have. That's not what he says. But you can part with some of the, your earthly goods and give to others to be charitable. Because you recognize it's not up to me being able to hold on to these things, but ultimately it is up to the gracious and the good hand of God, my Father, to care for me. And what do we also often find we hold these things? They start slipping away, don't they? A few times that I've thought I would hoard a few things, somehow or another they just disappeared. <laughs> Can't do it. So don't look at life as though you've got to 
Hold all that you can. Live with an open hand in regard to the things of this earth. Trusting, trusting that there is an unfailing treasure in heaven. Verse 33. An unfailing treasure in heaven where thieves do not come and moths do not destroy. It's eternal. It's untouchable. And trusting that God Himself has caused my heart to treasure eternal things. Where do you get a heart that's going to seek the kingdom of God? Where does that come from? Only God does that. Only a believer can look at this verse and hear these words and hear the teaching of Jesus and He says, Seek of the kingdom. Only a believer can look at that and say, That's really and truly what I want. Where's that come from? It comes from Him. That He gives us those desires. That they're not of our flesh. That they're not foolish. They are holy and they are right pursuits. J.C. Ryle says, The man to whom the promises before us belongs is the Christian who gives to the things of God their right order and their right place. He does not neglect the worldly duties of his station, but he regards them as of infinitely less importance than the requirements of God. In short, he aims in all of his life daily to put God first and the world second. To give the second place to the things of his body and the first place to the things of his soul. This is the man to whom Jesus says, all these things shall be added unto you. Let me just read one more portion here from J.C. Ryle, just in, actually in conclusion here. Nothing is more common than a careful, and I hear the word careful being used in the sense of being troubled and bothered, and full of care, overly concerned. But nothing is more common than a careful and a troubled spirit. And nothing so mars a believer's usefulness and minishes his inward peace. Nothing, on the contrary, glorifies God so much as a cheerful spirit in the midst of temporal troubles. It carries a reality with it which even the worldly can understand. It commends our Christianity and makes it beautiful in the eyes of men. When he talks of the verse here, Seek ye the kingdom of God, he says, We are not to give our principal thoughts to the things of this world. We are not so to live as if we had nothing but a body. We are to live like beings who have immortal souls to be lost or saved, a death to die, a God to meet, a judgment to expect, and an eternity in heaven or in hell awaiting us. And if you're consumed and you're concerned and you're distracted by things about food and clothing, you're not rightly considering the things of God, the things of eternity. 
to live as though God exists. That's what God he calls us to. Just simply live as though He exists. As though He knows. As though He is the Father. As though He cares for His creation as we can witness in the ravens and the lilies. And to seek His kingdom. To seek the kingdom of God. No man will ever come up with that. This is God's instruction to us. Seek the kingdom of God. Because these other things are secondary. I'll take care of them. You give yourself to the chief business of seeking first things which are eternal. Let's pray. Lord, your words have been a sword to our hearts. But as you minister such pain, oh Lord, that there is such healing. Because you you direct us back to you. And what a good place to be. Lord, we confess that we have not rightly considered your creation. We have not rightly regarded you for who you are. And hence we've exposed ourselves by our simply the, the amounts of worry and anxiety and the amount of simply being distracted from the things that are of eternal value by things that will be gone in a moment. Lord, take your words of truth here. Apply as you would be pleased. Lord, anything that is Merely the words of men, may it pass away. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.